ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, three tremendous guests this week. Joining me will be Tom Lydon, founder and CEO of ETF Trends. And if you follow the ETF space at all, you already know that one of its defining characteristics is the dominance of market cap weighted products, right? ETFs tracking indexes like the S&P 500 or NASDAQ 100, the Russell 1000. And just to give you an idea, the top five ETFs by assets right now, those represent over 20% of total industry assets. And all five of those are market cap weighted. Let me say that again. Right now, five market cap weighted ETFs represent over 20% of the $6.7 trillion ETF industry. And you can just go down the list from there if you go past those top five it's clear the industry has been built on the back of market cap weighting. Now, obviously, the reason for that is because investors and advisors are seeking out those products. That's ultimately the driver. But Tom and I are going to spend a few minutes talking about potential investment implications here because market cap weighted products, especially ones tracking an index like the S&P, they become much more top heavy over the past decade with the uh, Fang stocks and Tesla and some of the other big names running extremely hard. So Tom and I will discuss whether investors should be concerned about that and how this could impact ETF innovation and growth moving forward. I'll then be joined by Douglas Jonas, head of exchange traded products at the New York Stock Exchange. Douglas is one of the true ambassadors of ETFs. If you've seen any of the ETF bell ringings at the NYSE, if you've caught those on CNBC or wherever, you've seen Doug. He's always up on the podium. But I'm looking forward to this. This will be perfect following my chat with Tom because Douglas and I will discuss the growth of actively managed ETFs. Maybe the ETF space is already pivoting away from the reliance on passively managed market cap weighted products. So we'll discuss that. And then I also want to ask Douglas about several other ETF topics, including ESG and, of course, my favorite topic, Bitcoin ETFs. And then to close this week, a really interesting guest who I think you'll enjoy, Henry Jim, founder of ETF Hearsay. I would say nobody covers new ETF filings and launches like Henry does. If you follow Henry on Twitter, you already know what I'm talking about. But what you may not know is that Henry has been involved in the development of over 100 ETFs. He's been with State Street, iShares, JP Morgan. This is someone who knows ETFs inside and out. And he's going to give us a nice window into the ETF filing process and current product development. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci. 
or you can send comments through etfprime.com. Let's chat with ETF Trends' Tom Lydon. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. This is a challenging time, probably the most challenging in 30 years. Coming out of the financial crisis, $600 billion in ETF assets. They're starting to understand that there's more opportunity outside of those major market indexes. Tom, great having you back on the podcast. Hey, Nate, how are you? I'm doing doing well this morning. And we are going to talk about the dominance of market cap-weighted indexes uh, in the ETF space. Before we do that, though, you, you know, it's funny. The first U.S.-listed ETF to launch was, of course, a market cap-weighted product, SPY, the uh, Spider S&P 500 ETF. That was over 28 years ago. And now 28 years later, 28 years, we got this news last week. One of the last remaining ETF holdouts, Capital Group, who, of course, offers the American Funds lineup, they're finally entering the ETF market. And actually, it'll be uh, 29 years by the time their ETFs launch in the first part of uh, next year. I'd love to get your quick thoughts on this. I know this move has been in the works for a, a while, but they're finally moving forward now. What do, what do you think about this? Well, it's great. I mean, I think all of us who've been coming out of the mutual fund world, like you and I were, uh, you know, showing our age a little bit, you looked at traditional indexes. Uh, but the mutual fund world, as you remember, Nate, had a lot of rock stars. Remember, you know, Peter Lynch with Fidelity Magellan, Bill Miller. But we really hadn't seen the first few decades of ETFs any rock stars because we're basically tracking indexes. And then most recently, we have seen some notable personalities. Uh, Jeff Gunlock with, with DoubleLine, uh, Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary with O'Shares, and then Kathy Wood and what she's done and how prominent uh, she and the folks at ARK Invest have been. So that's been nice to see this transition from cap-weighted traditional indexes over to mainline mutual funds that have finally converted the American centuries of the world, T. Rowe Price, Putnam, Franklin Templeton, and yes, Fidelity. We have a Fidelity Magellan ETF, uh, JP Morgan, PIMCO, and as you mentioned, the last holdout capital group that's going to do a great job rolling out a suite of ETFs in uh, the first quarter of 22. And the great thing in the differentiator here, Nate, is they're going to be active, but also transparent. So uh, many of these active managers that have come to market have this big question to overcome. Do I show my holdings or do I not? And do I treat the holdings like a, a conventional mutual fund and just lift up the hood every 90 days? Capital Group made the right decision. They're going to go active, transparent, and uh, it's going to be exciting to see what they do. Yeah, I thought that was very noteworthy that they're using the transparent ETF wrapper. And I'm going to uh, visit with Doug Jonas with uh, NYC later and talk a little bit about that. But, you know, that's a big statement. I think most people would have expected them to use a non-transparent wrapper. Now, you know, with a non-transparent wrapper that can currently only, uh, only hold stocks trading in the same time zone as U.S. exchanges. Transparent allows for custom baskets. So maybe those sorts of things tipped them uh, towards transparent. But uh, agree, that's a big statement. And, you know, just as it relates to Capital Group overall, you may have seen my tweet on this last week. I said gradually, then suddenly. And that's exactly what's happening in ETFs, right? This has been building for a while, but it now just seems like an avalanche when you think about the big names like DFA and, and Capital Group and, and some of the names that you've mentioned. Everybody is moving into the ETF space. I was actually trying to think, like, like who's still left out there? What, what companies haven't launched an ETF? And all I can think of, I know some of the uh, the banks like Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, they haven't launched yet. Wells Fargo is coming to market, but there really aren't many mutual fund companies left. No, you're, you're right. And, and it's not one or the other, Nate, you know, it's all about choice. So there are a lot of uh, companies out there that talk to their clients. They talk to their, their individual investors. They talk to their advisors. And they said, look, we're not abandoning our mutual fund holdings, but we'd like the choice of having your same management wrapped with an ETF wrapper. And, and you know, with defined benefit plans still not really 
offering many ETF options, there's a lot of money that's still going into 401k. At Fidelity, 75 cents of every dollar of new money that goes into Fidelity funds goes in via 401k plan. So it's not that disruptive. It's all about choice. No, that's a great point. And I do think with Capital Group, that the distribution model will be interesting to watch here, just because American funds still has very strong commission-based mutual fund sales, which, you know, it's sort of funny. Everyone talks about the move to fee-based investment advice, which that's absolutely true. That's been a major trend in place. But, and I'm sure you see this as well. I see all the time where prospective clients at other firms, they're still loaded up on on uh, commission-based mutual funds. Or to your point, you look into 401k plans, they're stuffed with commission-based uh, mutual funds. Now, you know, if Capital Group really embraces ETFs, that could put pressure on on their own model there. But uh, there are still plenty of, uh, of, of loaded mutual funds out there. I just think that'll be an interesting aspect to watch. Now, Tom, despite the industry uh, continuing to grow and, and adding more active players, as I was mentioning at the top, obviously market cap weighted index ETFs still dominate the space. And I, I ran these stats yesterday. The five largest ETFs right now are the aforementioned SPY, that's the largest, followed by the iShares Core S&P 500 ETF, ticker IVV, the Vanguard Total Stock Market ETF, VTI, Vanguard S&P 500 ETF, VOO, and then the uh, Invesco QQQ Trust. All of those are market cap weighted, and those five ETFs together account for 21% of industry assets. And as I mentioned, you can just go down the list from there. It's, it's really a lot of market cap weighted products. Pretty remarkable how dominant and resilient these products have been, right? Well, absolutely. And Nate, you know, you're an advisor um, and you watch the flows. I mean, coming out of the financial crisis, we had $600 billion in ETFs. Now we have 10x that amount. And if you invested in those top five ETFs that you just talked about, it would have been really tough for you to be beat. Uh, the S&P, the NASDAQ 100, they've done exactly what they're supposed to do. And that cap-weighted strategy by actually having a greater allocation to the best performing stocks as they grow, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. And we're not against that. But again, as you look at the average portfolio today of a self-directed investor or even advisors, you have a very high correlation to the S&P and uh, you're underweighted mid-cap and small-cap. You're underweighted foreign stocks, which 55% of global market cap is outside the U.S. That's done well for you up until this point, but I'm just raising the question, uh, will this continue over the next 10 years? We know small caps tend to outperform large caps over time. And from a valuation standpoint, you can go overseas and get stocks 50% off represented in some major ETFs. Uh, I, I think it's just important to, to talk about that. It's great to talk about the next hot dot ETF, but as you and I are responsible for client assets, it's also important that we diversify. And I think for investors out there, while we're in this uh, crazy Robin Hood world, it's important to kind of bring up risk tolerance when we've got valuations at these levels. Well, let's talk more about that. I mean, how much does the concentration in some of these products concern you? Because over the past decade, as mega cap tech in particular has run up, there has been a lot of fear mongering over how concentrated these indexes have become. You look at the S&P 500, NASDAQ 100. Right now, the top five holdings in the S&P 500 represent over 22% of that index. The top 10 are nearly 30%. With the NASDAQ 100, the top five are about 41% of holdings, and the top 10 are 55%. And then even if you look at a VTI, which is obviously you know highly diversified, has a lot more holdings, its top 10 holdings account for about 23% of that ETF. Does that type of concentration concern you? I mean, it clearly has worked, but, but moving forward, is that something that advisors should be worried about? Well, at least if they know those those weightings that you talk about, it's important, and it's important that you share that with your clients. At the same time, I think I'm more concerned about not participating in the future FANG stocks. So um, the future FANG stocks may or may not be in the S&P 500 or may or may not be 
in, in uh, the NASDAQ 100. When you go back and you look at the early days of Amazon and Apple, uh, you had to look elsewhere in order to get the, the, that initial run-up. And today, with um, you know companies that you see in, with disruptive technologies in areas, areas that Kathy Wood plays in, in, in genomics and robotics and uh, uh, autonomous vehicles, and the suppliers to those industries, they may be just starting. And if, if they're not in the NASDAQ 100 or if they're not in the S&P 100, and uh, I'm sorry, S&P 500, and by the time they make them into these major market indexes, most of their gains already might have been realized. So again, it's, it's about diversification. And with ETFs, as we talk about all the time, Nate, there are plenty of choices. So think about peeling off your large cap growth as we continue to hit new highs in the marketplace as we speak today, right? <laughs> No, 100%. And, and, you know, to their point, there are other options, right? So, for example, investors can look to alternatively weighted ETF, something like RSP, the Invesco S&P 500 Equal Weight ETF, or uh, YPS, the Arrow Reverse Cap 500 ETF. There are all sorts of smart beta ETFs out there that, that slice and dice things differently. You, you know, to me, it goes back to what you were alluding to earlier. It comes down to an investor's ability to stick with any of these products, because, if you're going to be in a market cap weighted product, that's going to perform one way. If you're going to be in an alternatively weighted product, that's going to perform another way. Now, people who have stood by the S&P 500 and NASDAQ over the past decade plus, they've been richly rewarded. Uh, but that hasn't always been easy when everyone's crying bubble the, the whole way up. Now, of course, the party will come to an end at some point. Uh, but, you know, I think with market cap weighted indexes, obviously, you're going to get the good with the bad. I, I want to go back to a point you were making just regarding uh, thematics. And uh, Tom Hendrickson and I, we covered this in pretty good detail last week, just this topic of thematic ETFs. But do you think one of the reasons we have seen a rise in thematics is because investors are looking to diversify away from the top heaviness of some of these market cap weighted indexes? Well, absolutely. And going through COVID really brought that, that to the surface. Uh, these companies that helped, let's just say the average investor or even the small company, the, the average entrepreneur out there had to step up from a technology standpoint during COVID. They were forced to if they wanted to keep their business moving. And with all that, we're better off for it. But they had to learn about new and innovative technologies. The companies that supplied these technologies did a really good job. And not only that, their growth projections uh, were increased drastically. Hence, their stocks increased drastically. Now, we're never going to go back from a technology standpoint when COVID's over. The average small business where you know 55% of global or of US GDP is on the backs of small businesses in a certain way we're better for that we're going to be better com competitors in the future and uh, it's because of these innovative technologies so with with that being said i think for for the average investor out there they're looking for those types of opportunities and and even though companies like zoom are having a little bit of a settlement here. We've got a lot of companies that continue to do very, very well, and they you find them in a lot of these thematic strategies. But I also heard what you said last week, Nate, you as an advisor in dealing with your clients who bring this subject up, it's not as though you're going to put 25% in a thematic ETF. You want to give them a small allocation that's appropriate to make sure that they do have a chance to participate in the future FANG stocks by having maybe a 3 to 5% allocation. No question. Those are satellite holdings around the edges of the core. Um, Tom, briefly here, you know, we're talking market cap weighting on the equity side. There's actually a somewhat similar situation occurring with bond indexes and ETFs. Right now, uh, you look, there are two bond ETFs in the top 11 ETFs overall, the iShares Core U.S. Aggregate Bond ETF, AGG, and the Vanguard Total Bond Market ETF, BND, both track the Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate Bond Index. Uh, BND is float adjusted, but these indexes weight towards the largest debtors. And of course, a lot has been made uh, about the overweight to U.S. Treasuries in the ag. Do you think investors should be considering alternatives on the bond side? 
Well, I think this is one of the biggest concerns in, in the last 30 years. Uh, we've seen declining interest rates, and we've all been better for it. But uh, those of us that are managing money, uh, if we were managing money 30 years ago, we weren't managing that much, and we really forget what it was like to go through a rising rate environment or an inflationary period. A lot of advisors that we're talking to, Nate, are saying that uh, 80-20 is a new 60-40. More and more are moving money outside of the fixed income area because it's just not worth playing. Uh, the Barclays Ag, where we have trillions of dollars that are pegged to it, uh, it, it's going to be in trouble in the next three to five years, no doubt. We may not have hit the lows on the 10-year Treasury, but it, it's pretty darn close. It's probably not going to go negative. And we continue to see worries about inflation, and advisors have been concerned about inflation for an extended period of time. That being said, what we're seeing is they're deconstructing the ag in ways that, uh, as you point out, they're looking for alternative strategies, and that might be areas like dividend strategies, where it's over on the equity side with the dividend kicker, or even uh, things like the the nationwide risk managed income newsy uh, or JP Morgan's equity premium, where you've got options overlay strategies. It's an income strategy. You're getting seven to eight percent yield. That makes up a lot of yield for what you might not be getting in conventional bonds. And then finally, um, we talked about this before, Nate, the, the, the numbers keep ticking up in money market funds where people are just saying, I'm taking my marbles and going home. I'm just going to stay safely on the sidelines, even if I'm not getting paid for it. It's not worth trying to chase real return when there's no chance in getting it. So, Tom, just to put a nice bookend on our conversation here today, you know, we started off by talking about the growth of ETFs and how far the industry has come. Capital Group finally caving and getting involved. It sounds like you do think the industry will, will continue to slowly move away from reliance on cap weighting. Is that fair? I think so. I think the tools that we continue to get from ETFs are fantastic, Nate. And look, um, at one point in time, we, we hope and everyone's cheering the markets on as we continue to hit new highs with traditional indexes. And, and these traditional indexes that have been around for 50 to 100 years have done investors very, very well. And it has, to a great degree, been a self-fulfilling prophecy. At the same time, we do lack diversification today. There are other opportunities that will do well in the future. I think what you and I try to do in educating advisors and educating investors is just understand what your current allocation is. Not necessarily are you in the best ETF. Understand your current allocation and are there other opportunities to diversify out there? The best thing to do is do that when you're at market highs, not after we've seen a 20 or 30 percent correction. Absolutely. Words of wisdom. Tom, excellent insight as always. Thank you for joining me this week. Thanks, Nate. That was Tom Lydon, founder and CEO of ETF Trends. I'm now joined by Douglas Jonas, head of exchange-traded products at the New York Stock Exchange, who is currently home to about 75% of all ETFs in terms of listed assets under management, nearly 1,700 ETFs in all. And Douglas is a longtime industry veteran, was actually at Vanguard for 17 years. He's been with the New York Stock Exchange for the past six years, and he's now on the line with me from New York. Douglas, great having you back on the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's always great to be here. Okay, so you actually joined me back in January. And you may recall, I asked what had you most excited about ETFs moving forward. Now, you gave me two answers, and we can talk about both. But one was active management and active ETFs. And I've got to say, uh, your crystal ball is working extremely well. We, we actually need to start getting your stock market takes <laughs> because this has been a breakthrough year for active ETFs. And I'm sure you know these stats better than I do. But so far in 2021, 
we're closing in on, I believe, 170 active ETF launches, which is more than double the number of passive ETF launches. I don't think anybody would have dreamed about that 10 years ago. What's going on here? Why the uptake? Uh, yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and um, you know it's it's not just the fact that there's 127 new ETFs uh, that that came out this year, but even more importantly is the number of different issuers, right? So so if you look across, even in the if I just say active issuers alone, we had 34 brand new ETF issuers, never had an ETF before, come to market this year launching active ETFs, right? So here, here we are coming into just nine months. So we say, you know, if you, if you divide that out, right, that's about four and a half, almost five new issuers a month in the world of active. Uh, it, look, it all comes down to ETFs themselves. They're inherently in the product structure. You've got, you've got three key items that drive all this. The first is if you're an act, if you're an asset manager and you're you're running money and you want to distribute your ideas, you can wrap it in a mutual fund or you can wrap it in an ETF. The ETF has a lower cost structure, so automatically right out of the gate, the second I choose an ETF, you and I as investors are going to save a lot of money because they can pass on that lower fee, that lower cost structure, right into the ETF. The second is ETFs have a higher tax efficiency. So again, as an asset manager, if I can reduce the tax imprint, if I can it, it reduce the cost of taxes to you as an investor, you're better off, I'm better off, everyone's better off. And the third is ETFs are easily distributed. We can all access ETFs from our phones, from our brokerage accounts, and it's not just U.S. investors. A U U.S. asset manager can list an ETF with the New York Stock Exchange, and investors from all around the world have immediate access. So, so if I sum it up, it's distribution. And those three key benefits cut across every every channel. The reality is it's just active is now finally catching up, if you will, to the world of passive and, and wrapping in, in an ETF. Yeah, and this growth is occurring across asset classes. I mean, you look at active, it's in equities, it's in fixed income, it's in commodities, uh, certainly thematics. Uh, I saw a stat that nearly 75% of active ETFs saw positive uh, flows in the first half of the year. And you look at it active overall, it's still small as a percentage of the total ETF market, about 3 to 4%, but it's had the an outsized share of flows this year, something like 17 18%. Um, Douglas, you, you were mentioning, you know, if you're a manager and you want to distribute your ideas, what's the best structure? And, you know, hopefully that points down the path towards an ETF. And there are several, I, I guess, related topics I want to ask you about on that. And the first is mutual fund to ETF conversions, because since we last visited, uh, history was made, right? We saw the first conversions from Guinness Atkinson, and then several other fund companies have followed, including uh, DFA. They've converted some $30 billion in mutual funds uh, just a couple of weeks ago. JP Morgan announced they would be converting like $10 billion in mutual funds to ETFs. How big of a trend uh, do, do you think this can become? Yeah, I, this one is probably one of the more exciting trends we're seeing. As you mentioned, right, all, today we've, we've converted seven mutual funds to ETFs all here at the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, and, and there's two pieces to it. The, the first is, as an asset manager, when you enter the ETF space, one of the big hurdles or the challenges is you want to get your ETF on every platform, right? You want all of the advisors in the world and, and all the different, um, you know, strategists and all the model portfolios. You want them to have access to your ETF. But there's a very key point that can be challenging, which is along all those distribution channels, there's often a gatekeeper. And those gatekeepers start to look at things like long-term track record, uh, performance history, size of assets in the, in the fund, in the ETF. Those are big boxes that you need to check. That's fine, but a lot of asset managers, when you launch a brand new ETF, it's, it's going to take you some time to build those key points and, and then thereby gaining you access to the distribution channel. But if you take a current mutual fund that, that has a long-term track record, that has great performance, that has a lot of assets, by converting direct, you keep all of that history and you immediately enter the world of ETFs with size and scale. 
So, so you get those three key benefits I talked about. You can reduce the operating costs for your fund. You can save your investors a lot of money. You can improve their tax outcomes. Fantastic. Investors love that. You can enhance your distribution. That's great. But you bring along all the other, all the, all the other great history that comes with the fund. So we, we are literally at the beginning of what will be a very large and long-term trend. This is going to be a five, ten-year trend that will continue to, to pick up pace every single month as we go. Uh, it's something me and my team have spent a long time working on because th- this is a big project. I always tell people when they say, you know, oh, how, how easy is it to convert? Conversions were a holy grail for our industry for many, many years. Some great, smart people worked really hard to make it work, but it's a big project plan. It can take anywhere from 10 to 12 months or more, and so it, it takes a lot of commitment. So uh, I expect great things from, from that area, but, but for those that are listening and thinking you want to be involved, please reach out. Uh, let's have a conversation so that, that you're on the right track. Douglas, another trend that I think is just beginning to uh, d- develop, what about advisors leveraging the ETF wrapper for their clients. So someone like yep. Ross Gerber, right? And, and Gerber Kawasaki comes to mind. They recently launched the Advisor Shares Gerber Kawasaki ETF. Um, I had him on the podcast. He saw this as a, a home run. He said, look, we can offer our active stock picking strategy and a tax efficient wrapper for clients and also just make it easier for anyone to access this strategy, even non-clients, which you think about someone like uh, Ross Gerber, he has a huge following on social media. And so he thought, hey, you know, I, I have that avenue that, that I can use to help um, get visibility around the ETFs. How, how big of an opportunity do you see this being for the ETF space? It's bigger than I think a lot of people expect. When we look at the size of uh, asset managers coming to market lately, it's not just the big companies that, that maybe feel like they missed out. It is a lot of uh, you know, smaller run shops that are running, let's say, four or five SMA models. Your, your example is a perfect one. The, the team at Advisor Shares, they run a great platform. Uh, there are a lot of firms like Advisor Shares that have built these platforms to say, hey, maybe you want to maintain, maybe you're an advisor and you're sitting somewhere between the, the 5 and $10 billion range, but you want to lower your infrastructure costs and you want to take advantage of the ETF market. Well, you keep your CIO function, so you continue to run your, your three to six models. Uh, but look, instead of continuing to, to build more and more SMAs, more and more individual accounts, all the costs, the operating, the upkeep, let's, let's remove all that expense from our business. And as clients come in the door, you can still continue to work with them and build your strategy. But what do you do? You put them into your own strategy that just so happens to be an ETF. So, so you take a lot of the operating costs out of your business. Oh, and by the way, now you have global access to distribution. So you maybe instead of just managing you know, a group of investors that are coming through your own local network or through your own community, you can actually tap into the, to the broader scale world of, of ETFs. And that's a lot of what my team work on, with, with, which is getting shelf space and, and helping people get the word out about, hey, I'm an advisor running these six models. And by the way, I'm now making them available to you across the whole world, which is great for your own investors, right? Because the more that global investors come in, uh, the great thing about ETFs is uh, they co- they're created and redeemed in kind. They have great tax efficiency. So the investors that are in the ETF, they only gain by having new investors come in. They're, they're not hurt at all by those additional investors. So it's, it's win-win across the board. No, absolutely. That's exactly what, what I thought as you were going through that. It's a win for the firm, a win for the advisor, and it's clearly a win for the client as well. And I'll just add, you, you talked about the uh, the operating costs. I think the cost of launching ETFs themselves have come down significantly, and, and that helps make it a more compelling business proposition from the advisory firm as well. Um, D- Douglas, last time you were on, uh, we really didn't have an opportunity to drill into non-transparent ETFs or semi-transparent ETFs, w- w- whatever you want to call them. And of course, NYSE does offer a non-transparent structure. It's a proxy structure. It's your own intellectual property. And I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware, I've been, uh, we'll say, fairly skeptical on the non-transparent structure overall. I just feel like investors value the transparency of traditional ETFs. And I've also talked to a lot of active managers who they have said fears of front running or having their strategies reverse engineer, those sorts of things, that those fears are overblown. What's the counter to that? Because if you look so far, at least from my perspective, I would say investor reception to non-transparent ETFs has been pretty lukewarm. Why are you optimistic here? 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I know you're a bit skeptical, and <laughs> and and I, I think you know I'm not skeptical. First, let me look at look at the stats. We we've had semi-transparent, whatever we want to call them, ETFs that don't disclose their holdings every day. Let's just put it that way. So we've they've been around for about you know 13 months, and we already have over two billion dollars invested there. So if if you break it down, I know it's simple math. That's 153 plus million per month in cash flow. So the, the investors believe believe in it. The, the reality is there is a lot more money in the world invested in active management than there is in passive management, yet active managers have not really been willing to convert over to ETFs. Yes, smaller managers and, and you know, uh, that, that maybe are running a, a $200, $500 million fund, uh, even those that are running much bigger funds, like, for example, Kathy Wood, the, there are managers out there that are comfortable saying, here's my holdings every day, and, and I don't mind. But the reality is some of the world's biggest global asset managers are moving such large volume of dollars that people really will get in front of those trades, and it will hurt their end investors. It's hard for them to be a fiduciary and say, hey, it's in the best interest of my current shareholders to let someone know what I'm about to trade before I do it. And so that's held the ETF managers or held them back from becoming ETF managers. The reality is now they have a multiple number of models to choose from. My belief is, yes, uh, even though the New York Stock Exchange, we offer an out-of-the-box solution that, that's extremely flexible, I don't think three years from now, five years from now, anyone's going to talk about the different models. They're just going to say, hey, this is my mutual fund that happens to be in an ETF form, and they're going to talk about their active ETF. It, it's really for, for you and me, maybe the, the, the more, uh, you know, as I like to call them, nerdlers of the industry, where we love this stuff, where we're really focused on the difference between a proxy model and how it works and the plumbing. I think the investors of the world, the advisors of the world, they're just going to want to tap into their active manager that's doing a great job, and they're going to want to know that they're not losing some sort of efficiency due to front running, and they've got a nicer tax-efficient model that has a lower operating cost. Well, let me ask you this, and we won't get into a, a big debate here. I, I think to your point, if you look at some of the filings by asset managers who plan on using the non-transparent structure, there's no question it's a who's who, right? You can go right down the list. John Hancock, Hartford, BlackRock, Goldman, Schwab. I mean, the list goes on. However, just last week, we did learn that Capital Group, who of course offers American funds, one of the largest active managers, they're finally going to enter the ETF space. And I thought it was very interesting that they're going to use the transparent ETF wrapper. And, and to what you were saying, obviously, someone like ARK Invest and Kathy Wood, they've had tremendous success with the transparent wrapper. Does that say anything to you that that capital group is, is, is going to use a transparent wrapper? Or do you think they just want the flexibility to, uh, to use both? Here's what what I think it says. It says, "Hey, we're a very large, well-established asset manager, very well known for exceptional performance, particularly in active. Uh, yet we're going to enter a market where we really haven't been before. So, so let's learn." all the different pieces, right? Let's learn the distribution models. Let's learn the plumbing. Let's learn all the different steps that might be a little different as someone who's managing ETFs versus someone who's managing active mutual funds. Then let's start to diagnose where do we need to be concerned about things like piggyback, trading, front running, et cetera. So if you look at the, you know, if we stay on them for a moment, if you look at their filings, most of those filings are in places where traditional active managers may not be so concerned about someone to try, trying to get in front of their trades. When we start to look at the filings in the world of semi-transparent where people are hiding, it again tends to be in the places where as a manager you just don't want someone to know what you're doing. And the reality is some of the, the models that have been built, like, like our proxy model here, uh, they run so efficient that they look, act, and feel like any other ETF for both the manager as well as the market maker as well as all the different pieces of the exchange that the choice is pretty simple. You can either have it turned on or turned off, whether you want to be fully transparent or you want to hide your holdings. You can do it without without a big lift, but but I think what we're looking into, right, is as an active asset manager enters the market, they start to get the hang of things, they start to see how things work. Those are the people we're engaged with to to start to look at potentially converting from fully transparent into semi-transparent, whether it be a full conversion out of a mutual fund or just converting a current ETF. Douglas, moving away from just actively managed ETFs, if we widen out the lens here. 
Talk a bit about the growth of ETFs overall. So we, we've already eclipsed the annual record in terms of inflows. You, you look right now, U.S. ETF assets are approaching $7 trillion overall to, to what we were just talking about. There are all sorts of new players getting involved. T talk about the space overall right now. Absolutely. You know, I've been in in, in this you know in this this part of the market for for over two decades. Uh, I can tell you this is probably the most exciting that I've seen it with the most growth growth potential I've seen it in over two decades. So, you might take a step back and say, "Wow, well, you know, we're we're at twenty six hundred plus ETFs. Is there a lot more growth to be had? You know, do, does this feel?" Uh, too busy. It really doesn't, and here's why. Uh, one, I, I mentioned to you that the number of new ETF issuers coming in in the world of active. If I look just across all ETF issuers this year, there's there's roughly we're coming up on a hundred different different issuers have launched ETFs this year. That means the ETF market has has really start to come of age. All different asset managers of all sizes have finally been able to tap into the market. But as you mentioned, the cash flows there long gone are the days of we'll just put something in, in market and hope it works. People, people are spending the time, effort, diligence, making sure that their ideas are sound, making sure they have capital behind them. And the reality is the benefits of that structure that we started with, the lower cost, the higher tax efficiency, the easier distribution, those just make so much sense to an asset manager. It's hard not to be in the space. And the reality is we as investors have changed. You know, we look across just about every different archetype out there, whether it's institution down to retail, people want ETFs. They want the model. They that that more and more model portfolios are ETF only. More and more advisors are becoming ETF only. Institutions looking for ETFs only. So you know you, you've got these tremendous amounts of tailwinds. As an asset manager, you just have to be in the space. I'm a broken record, but I keep saying that the same thing. I feel like now, nearly every week on the podcast, you, you think about it. The first. U.S. listed ETF was launched in 1993, and here we are some 28-plus years later. The industry is still accelerating. There, there's momentum. It's just it, it's remarkable given that the first ETF was, uh, was launched in 1993. Um, Douglas, just a couple of minutes left. Let's close here with two of my favorite topics. And I mentioned there were two areas of, e of uh, ETFs that you were especially excited about moving forward uh, from when we visited back in January. B besides active management, the other one was ESG. And it's funny, you're probably going to think I'm like uh, some sort of negative Nelly, but, but this is another area I'm, I'm a bit skeptical of. Uh, just in a nutshell, why are you optimistic about ESG ETFs? Yeah, you know, we've talked about this a few times. And, and listen, uh, I came from a world of skepticism around uh, the idea of ESG. But, but when we look at ESG, there's now 92 different ESG ETFs in the market. Total assets, $79 billion. 19 plus, almost $20 billion of that of that 79 is coming in this year. So, you know, there, there's just a tremendous amount of money moving in, and it comes down to just a lot of different things. We, as both investors, as in, in long-term investments, right, moving our money, but also as investors of our daily life, we are all starting to care a whole heck of a lot more about what we're doing with our money, the types of companies we're investing in, the types of brands, what are the things that we want to own. My own children, teenagers, they care about sustainability. They're looking at companies' practices before they're choosing which shoes to buy or, or which you know, hoodie they want to buy. They, they care about these things, and that's you know, at a young age, but also as, as adults, right? Even my own town, we've moved away from plastic bags, right? This is the world we live in, and so when we when we act like that during our personal lives, don't we start to think about then our investing lives? And, and that's where, where money's moving. That's where we're seeing, you know, again, the old uh, adage of go where the puck is going to be. And that's the reality. So we've set up at the New York Stock Exchange across all of ICE, really, a number of different key components to help companies on their ESG journey, even if it's the companies that list at the New York Stock Exchange. And so we're really heavily invested in this space. We're big believers in it. And, the, the, you know, in the ETF world, it's, it's a tremendous amount of growth. About a minute left. Lastly, you already know what I'm going to ask you about. Bitcoin ETFs. <laughs> <laughs> we, we now have issuers lining up for uh, futures-based products. That, I think that was based on some comments out of the SEC a couple of months ago. Any new insight or thoughts around this space? 
we're we're super excited. I think you know a number of years ago we uh, you know across our our businesses we launched a futures business. It's called Backed. It runs a Bitcoin futures uh, exchange. We across all the ICE companies are super excited about digital currency. We're setting up all of the infrastructure needed for ultimately not just uh, digital currency ETFs but digital currency trading across. Uh, all of its its various uh, derivatives. And so uh, we're heavily invested in this area. We're really excited, as you can see from public filings. We're working with a lot of, of innovative companies in this space. Uh, it's hard not to be excited about digital assets when you start to talk to firms that are really entrenched deep in this. They, they teach me every time I get on the phone with them. Uh, I'm really excited. I hope we see an, a digital currency, whether it be a Bitcoin ETF or an Ether ETF. I hope we see that this year. You know, we're, I can just tell you we're diligently working on it every single day. We want to make it happen. Douglas, fun conversation this week. Always appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for joining me. As always, thanks for having me. That was Douglas Jonas, head of exchange-traded products at the New York Stock Exchange. My last guest this week, certainly not least, is Henry Jim, founder of ETF Hearsay, which has quickly become a go-to resource for tracking new ETF filings and launches. And the Hearsay and ETF Hearsay, I love this, it stands for Henry's ETF Alert Research and Strategic Analysis System. Uh, in system, it's using the uh, Y there. And I'll, I'll tell you, look, Henry himself, this isn't some startup endeavor by someone new to the space. Henry's developed over 100 ETFs with assets totaling 50 billion plus across the US, Canada, Europe, and Latin America. Uh, Henry's been with State Street, iShares, JP Morgan, just a tremendous industry resource. And he's now on the line with me from Switzerland. Henry, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Nate. Thanks for having me. So look, you have very quickly become one of my favorite follows on Twitter, uh, which by the way, for listeners, Henry's Twitter handle is at ETF Hearsay. Uh, just trust me, you'll want to follow him. I think you'll understand here in a minute why that is. <laughs> uh, but, but Henry, I just find it so difficult staying on top of all the filings and, and launches. I was just discussing with Douglas Jonas from the New York Stock Exchange about how the ETF industry continues accelerating. Uh, there, there's literally multiple new filings and launches every single day. Um, so first, just explain what you're doing with ETF Hearsay. Sure, Nate. Um, yeah, indeed, there's quite a lot of files coming up, but um, Hearsay actually started um, back in the early days of ETFs. Um, when I first started, it wasn't really a resource to go to to find filings and, and listings, so I had to develop this on my own. So over time, you can call it uh, out of habit, I've been tracking all the filings and listings, and it's, it's become second nature to me. So what I'm trying to do right now is, um, it seems like... Um, People find value and enjoy the tracking the listings as much as I do. So what I'm trying to do with Hearsay now is um, bring all the filings and listings that I see uh, out to the public, make sure um, you know everyone's on top of it, and uh, get the conversation going. It really ultimately benefits everyone to know what's going on in the industry. And so what do you see as the longer-term vision for ETF Hearsay? Well, like I said, ETFs uh, are my passion, so... Right now, I'm working on the intelligence part just to um, get back really into the game. But ultimately, uh, I'm talking to a few partners now, but ultimately to provide some ETF product development consulting services for the U.S., uh, Europe, and Latin America. Okay, so what I thought might be interesting here is uh, for people unfamiliar with how ETFs come to market, I'd love for you to just talk about that process, the major steps involved, and then what's publicly available in terms of tracking those steps, because that's really what I think people are seeing from you on, on Twitter and, and LinkedIn. So talk about that process. Sure. Uh, first of all, I'll talk about what, I, what I'm doing on Twitter, and then I'll explain a bit about the uh, product development process itself. 
So the way I look at it is there's two parts. There's a regulatory part to ETF development, um, launching, and then there's the um, commercial part, if you will. For the regulatory part, what you're seeing on ETF hearsay, um, the way it works is, um, generally speaking, is to launch an ETF, you have to file up what is called an N8 to establish a trust. Um, in some cases, that's followed up by a 48PP, so exemptive relief, depending on the fund. It's not as necessary anymore now that we have generic relief for ETFs and actives. Um, that's followed by an initial registration statement called an N1. That establishes the first fund. And then all subsequent funds after that are called series of the trust. And for each new one, you file 485A. Those usually have uh, 75 days to effective date, which is how I track it on ETF hearsay to find the effective dates. And if there's any um, changes or as we near the effective date, um, there's a final prospectus called 485B, which is filed. Once the 485B is filed, the fund is ready to launch its effective. Um, and that can be either in two days to a week or if the company um, once they can delay it for like months until they're ready to launch it. Sometimes though, if they're not ready to go effective, they file what's called 45 BXT, extending the effective date. Once the funds are launched, um, any major changes are usually noted by 497 or other 45 A's. And if there's needs to be like a proxy vote or something, they file what's called the P14A. Finally, at the end of the cycle, um, you have a 25 NSE, which is uh, filed when ETFs are to be delisted. That's filed by the exchange, and that's a, a pretty sad occasion. And those are uh, normal ETFs. When you have stuff like uh, the gold uh, bullion or Bitcoin ETFs, they file an S1, sort of like a, what an IPO would file, because these are covered under not the 1940 Investment Company Act, but they fall under the 1933 Securities Act. And it usually, this is also followed by a 90 before file by the exchange, because um, if you want to list on exchange with uh, a normal fund, for example, then you can just list. But uh, these funds usually break some rules, so they need to file 90 before, which um, allows um, modification of the rule to list these funds. One thing I'm curious about, how in the world do you stay on top of all these filings? I mean, I, I mentioned this previously from my perspective. It's truly amazing how quickly you, you tweet these out. How do you do it? Well, <laughs> I set the goal to, um, to get the, um, the tweets out within 30 minutes. Um, sometimes it takes an hour. Well, I have to read through it. But I try to get the filings out within 30 minutes of appearing in SEC. And the way I do it is, well, I've been doing this for quite a while now. Um, I have the SEC website open. I have about five different alert uh, systems going on, but I also have the pages where all the new filings come out, and I'm just watching it. And as they come out, I start analyzing it, uh, reading it through and summarizing in two or three uh, lines for my audience. Um, I'm watching the other ones pop up as well. But uh, it's it's constantly on. So I have... Uh, I have a good setup here in Switzerland. I got my uh, three, four computer screens um, going. So uh, that's how I stay on top of it. And the most important part actually is um, I have my hearsay database, which I've been, which has every single ETF that's ever been filed in the U.S. since um, SPY. So I keep on adding to that and and uh, streamlining it and making it more um, more efficient, if you will. Henry, given your experience, I mentioned your involvement in developing over 100 ETFs. Now you're tracking all these filings. I'm assuming you've developed a pretty good radar for what works and, and what doesn't. I, I mean, do you feel like you have a good gauge now on whether an ETF filing will ultimately become a successful product? You know, what's the recipe for success? Oh, well, that's, uh, that's a tough question. If I knew the answer to that, then I think I'd be... Uh launching only two, three funds and being really rich. <laughs> However, uh, in my experience, um, I have seen um, funds that are more likely to succeed if you define success as um, gathering assets, right? And the way I used to do it was whenever um, ID ETF ideas uh, came across my desk or into the firm, if you will, they usually came from three areas. It was either our sales folks, uh, our portfolio managers, or 
third parties, as I call them, so index providers or the exchange or um, other private individuals. But they came in really thick and fast. So the way to analyze it, to at least have a uh, framework for going through all these uh, submissions, was uh, what I call the three pillars of ETF product development, uh, idea analysis. It's a mouthful, but uh, what it comes down to is uh, I look at each idea, uh, recorded, of course, but then I also uh, take a look and see if the idea has investment merit, uh, does it make investment sense? Uh, second pillar is, does it have commercial viability? Can my sales folks sell this product? And thirdly, um, is operationally viable with our current systems and resources? So you go through the analysis and investment merit means, you know, you take a look at the index, if it's index based, or you look at the investment process, if it's active, how the portfolio is put together, um, projected performance, look at the methodology, see if it all makes sense, right? Um, then you look at commercial viability, which is, uh, um, I sound all my different channels. If in the case of a large firm, you know, you talk to the institutionals, intermediaries, um, uh, warehouses, um, platforms, et cetera, to see if there's any interest. Um, they can either come back with hard numbers or their own gut feeling, but at least you get a sense there of uh, what interest there is. Do you? And, yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, that includes like expense ratio. What uh, what should we price this? And if that makes sense, can we actually support this product? Yeah. I, I was just curious as you go through that. Do you have a favorite ETF that you were personally involved with in terms of development that that ultimately saw some success? Uh well, as a um, like a father. Um, I love all my funds equally. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I always think that these funds will be around a lot longer than I will be on this earth. But um, I got to say, at the beginning of my career, uh, the one I really had a lot of fun with was WIP. That's the, um, the uh, well, WIP stands for World Inflation Protection. So it's a global um, inflation-linked treasury bond ETF. And I really liked it because I was, I was saying about my uh, three pillars, that really um, ticked all the boxes. Plus, it was something new, and um, it was just really cool. Like, um, inflation-linked treasury bonds, there's always a place for that in anyone's portfolio, I think, um, depending on what your percentages might be. Um, it was something that had good demand in different regions. Like, for example, when I was uh, talking to pension funds in Latin America, uh, where inflation is historically a bad name and they um, have a lot of trauma with that, um, they found it really interesting. And since it was treasury bonds, it was safe. So it really appealed to them. And finally, from an operational perspective, as you know, inflation-linked treasury bonds, they all have different ways of calculating inflation and also of uh, calculating interest and, and inflation uh, rates, et cetera. So that was a challenge. It was, it was really cool. Plus, there's a business uh, backstory to that, too. Um, we first approached uh, uh, Barclays to help us put the index together. But um, as you know, back in those days, Barclays was the parent company of iShares. So they quickly uh, declined our, our request. <laughs> so I went to Lehman Brothers, who said they couldn't handle it. And finally, um, my inflation-linked uh, treasury bond uh, portfolio manager suggested Deutsche Bank put together a, uh, on a spreadsheet a um, little mock index, uh, which worked out. So that was a lot of fun. Henry, two minutes left. In a nutshell, just give us your overall take on ETF product development right now. So I mentioned earlier how the industry is clearly accelerating. There's obviously a ton of innovation. Are there certain uh, trends that intrigue you? Do you see areas of opportunity, uh, white space for product development? Just, just where are we right now? Well, since my history has been mostly in product development, um, I, I look a lot of the operational space, not so much the investment space. I think the investment space has been well covered by a lot of people who are a lot smarter than I am. What I'm seeing in terms of um, ETF um, trends or next stage, uh, I find the mutual fund to ETF conversions in the U.S. especially appealing. I think... Um, uh, as, a, as an industry, um, asset managers are starting to see uh, the ratings on the wall. Uh, I wouldn't call for the demise of mutual funds. I would just say, like, um, um, it'll definitely take, ETFs will definitely take a bigger chunk of the business going forward. And I think 
the mutual fund to ETF conversion will just be speeding up. I think that will be an interesting space to watch, um, especially given the smaller niche players coming in, like the uh, investment advisors who are also coming launching ETFs. This is going to be a very interesting space with uh, small, mid, and large asset managers coming um, into the game. In Europe, I think um, we have a lot, a lot of opportunity there um, in terms of distribution. Uh, there's a lot of structural issues that need to be addressed, uh, but they are being addressed. And I think it's just a matter of time before the flight gets open um, as viable distribution channels for global ETF managers in Europe. Obviously, there's some cultural nuances. Um, Europeans are not as uh, investment savvy or even as interested in investments as, say, Americans are, but uh, that's also slowly changing. Well, Henry, really enjoyed connecting. Keep up the excellent work with ETF Hearsay. Love following that. Thank you for joining me this week. My pleasure. I'm also on ETFHearsay.com, so um, check that out, too. That was Henry Jim, founder of ETF Hearsay. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Goldman Sachs Asset Management. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Ben Levine, Chief Investment Officer at 3DL. So Ben is an ETF strategist, and we're going to discuss markets, ETF due diligence, ETF portfolio construction, and then Wes Fulford, CEO of Veridi Funds, will spotlight their ESG crypto mining ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.